What are some unspoken rules that govern our life? What is baked into our conscience or unconscious perception of the spiritual journey? Decided to title my homily today, Reorientating Our Rule of Lent, as we look at the book of Romans. Lent can often seem like New Year's resolutions Christian edition, right? You might have decided that like you're going to finally do that meditation that you've been saying you really want to do, or you're going to get to some great book that some author you've told is really amazing has written, and you're going to, you listen, you got it on audiobook, so it's even really much easier now. Surely you can do that as you commute or whatever the thing is, and, and maybe we do, maybe we like begrudgingly somehow like manage to like guilt ourselves into slogging through uh, that practice because we committed to it. Uh, and maybe we don't, right? Maybe we'd said that we were going to fast from some tasty treat and we find ourselves a few weeks in saying, but it really is a tasty treat. And we've also been saying that we want to like care for our bodies and it feels like it would be really good care for my body to give myself this tasty treat, right? We we probably have, if you have any experience with practicing Lent or observing it in your own life, I would imagine it might be something along those lines. Recently, uh, Michael and I, the weekend before uh, Ash Wednesday, the, the lovely uh, configuration of both Ash Wednesday and Valentine's when they fall on the same day, uh, the weekend before we went to Alamo Draft House to go to the Princess Bride movie party and we had fun with you know our inflatable swords jousting uh, and we also had fun with the uh, idocaine powder that was actually really pixie uh, dust or not, pixie stick stuff the sugar in there um, and the thing that I love the most was that they gave us these little like valentine hearts that say prepare numeral to die uh, which I imagine was probably the title of the ill-fated sequel to Princess Bride and it just never kind of made it out of uh, the writer's room there, but really wondering like, wow, what does it mean to prepare to die? And as I've, st- <laughs> like, right? What, what does it mean? I, <laughs> this seems to be especially juxtaposed on like a Valentine heart candy. Um, A lot of what I think Paul really sees in the book of Romans and in much of his writings, what he's trying to hold together. Uh, Paul seems very transfixed on the cross, this grief, this death, this suffering, this loss. And equally, if you've read a lot of Paul's writings, you know he's very focused on the resurrection and sees everything through that lens as well. And I think really to understand Paul, or at least in my reading and interpretation of him, is to not allow these things to get far from each other, to hold them as twins next to each other, to have the Valentine heart of resurrection with the inscription, prepare numeral two, die, Um, there and essentially to say in our own human experience we are not going to be able to get away from either of these things there is the abundant hope 
of renewal, of resurrection, that our past doesn't have to dictate our future, that God really does care about all of creation and humanity and wants to see justice reign throughout. And there is our experience of injustice and of the ways that we can be personally selfish and disappoint ourselves and one another and relationships that have failed, whether those are personal or some leader or institution that we placed our trust in. Paul holds these two together and seems to say the Christian understanding, the the Jesus way understanding is that there is the cross and there is resurrection and we are just cycling through this. Some have called it the Paschal mystery of living, dying, and rising. Living, dying, and rising. This is not just a one-time event, but the cycle that all of humanity finds itself caught up in. Adele Albert Calhoun talks about a rule of life, which is typically just this kind of spiritual practice where you think about what will my spiritual practice be, essentially. It's sort of like you maybe in conjunction with a spiritual director or with a friend or family are just kind of trying to think through what might be some life-giving, nurturing, nourishing practices that I could commit myself to for a season. And whether we think about Lent like that or not, that is essentially what ostensibly we're doing during Lent. We're trying to ask ourselves, okay, for the next 40 days, what are some things perhaps that I might want to let go of? Or what are some things that I really want to try to be anchored or tethered to during this season? And so as uh, Calhoun talks about it, she looks at it first through the prism of desire and definition, says the desire is to live She says saying, I probably prefer the language of like a reasonable or something like that. So I'm going to just put that in there. To live a reasonable and holy rhythm that reflects a deep love for God and respect for how the creator has made me. Right? Like that seems like so much more inviting than like, what's the thing you really love that you must get rid of (laughs) for the next 40 days, right? Like, what does it look like to consider a reasonable and holy rhythm That's reflecting our growing or desire for a deep love of God and also a respect for how the creator has made each of us, right? I've been a part of churches where at times maybe even uh, whoever was speaking said, hey, so the thing I want to encourage us all to commit ourselves to for the next 40 days is, and then they'll give us some sort of, hey, we as a church are going to do this. We're going to meet every Wednesday and fast on Wednesdays and we're going to pray at the prayer meeting. This was like a Baptist kind of thing. We have Baptists have Wednesday night prayer meeting. So we're going to fast before it um, and then meet at the prayer meeting. And like that can be a very good thing. I'm not anti-fasting or anti-prayer meeting, but I think there's a beautiful thing of thinking like specifically, but yeah, particularly me, particularly me on my journey, how has the creator made me? And what is the invitation then for what growth looks like for me? The definition then Calhoun goes on to say, a rule for life offers unique and regular rhythms that free and open each person to the will and presence of Christ. The spiritual practices of a rule provide a way to partner with the Holy Spirit for personal transformation. 
And so again, there's just this language that to me feels so much more inviting about like what, what might allow me to open up? What might allow me to get more familiar and into a conversation with the deepest parts of me and how God has created me and perhaps not losing sight of the cross and those things that really feel like deep agony and pain and sorrow and grief right now in my life. What does it look like for me to befriend and be in conversation with all of those things for transformation? And again, I'm not trying to, I'm quoting her for a reason. I think she's incredible when it comes to talking about spiritual practices. But I would just maybe also give a little asterisk on the personal transformation and remind us that personal transformation is connected, hopefully, with our larger communal and systemic transformation. A friend and former colleague of mine, Josh Kulak, uh, who's a priest at St. Michael's Episcopal here in Austin, uh, you may have noticed, had an article in The Statesman uh, this past week where he talked about Faith, instead of giving up something for Lent, what if we gave something to the community? And he even gave three specific action points, and one of them was uh, the group we already partner with, IAC, and said, like, hey, IAC might be a great organization for you to consider getting to know more about and to work through and with. So just as that as a side to the personal transformation. But what might it mean to name the need for and create a different set of practices rituals, and theological as well as communal pathways for our uniqueness. Uh, My guess is that many of us that are in a place like Vox um, found ourselves at some point in our life deeply compelled by the life and movement of Jesus. And equally from almost every story I've had talking with each of you, I've also heard that at some point there was some type of disenchantment, some disappointment, some institution, some theological system, some leader or person really seemed to hurt you, traumatize you or some group of people whom you cared about. And we find ourselves in a community like Vox because we are hoping beyond hope or as our scripture would say, hoping against hope, that perhaps we could still remain a part of this Jesus way and find a way back to feeling that sense of compelling, vivacious, life-giving energy from Jesus. But we've also got our guard up, right? We kind of don't want to be taken in again. And so what might it look like for us to acknowledge that unique challenge in our journey I want to suggest that first, part of what we have to do is interrogate a one-size-fits-all spirituality. Um, If you grew up evangelical or in a fundamentalist faith, you might have had something, and I'm not necessarily knocking these things, but like you may have been taught something like the four laws, or uh, in my particular Baptist church, I was taught the Roman road, which was the specific text that I was literally encouraged to highlight in my Bible and underline and put little paper clips on the page where they were there so that I could easily find them so that at the point I found myself in a conversation with someone and was ready to take them down with me t- on the Roman road, I could easily find each of these passages because apparently Paul didn't understand himself well enough to put these verses all next to each other, so we needed to help him out for it. Uh, And this was the thing that I was to do, like no matter who you were, where you were, what you were going on in your life, like this is the journey that I was taught to do. And I, again, I don't really have a problem with the Roman road per se, 
but I am interrogating like, yeah, that may not have been always the place to begin every conversation I wanted to have about spirituality with someone. You know, in fact, probably the place to begin is to listen to other people and to their story and their journey and their life. Um, but many times we have understood uh, the Christian tradition as a one size fits all. In fact, I think in some ways that's how it's been postured as good news. It's like, hey, yeah, it doesn't matter who you are, or what you've done or where you've been or your story. Uh, like all of that, like because the ground at the cross is equal, right? It's like level for every person. And I do believe that as well. So I'm not interrogating that. But the sense that then, so how we relate to and grow in our relationship with Christ um, is the same thing, that we should all sign up for, you know, first maybe a new believers class and then some sort of like mid-tier discipleship class and then either advanced or it's so advanced that now you're teaching people or whatever the path was. And this was what everyone was going to do because this church had decided this is the best way. The term really is like Borg Star Trekky assimilation, uh, <laughs> that this is how you're going to be assimilated into the community. Um, feels very colonizer, feels very like, hey, we are going to take you and turn you into us because we hold the truth and you didn't, but we are going to pattern you in our own image. And I just don't believe that that's what Paul is doing here. And the book of Romans was likely written in a time when the Jesus way was still a sect of Judaism. That is, it had not yet been expelled from and become a distinct religious tradition apart from Judaism. And the Jewish people that lived in the city of Rome for a few years were expelled from Rome. A church had already been planted or a Christian movement or Jesus way movement. Again, the language gets a little tricky because no Christianity just yet um, had already been planted in Rome. But then all of the people who were ethnically had grown up religiously Jewish would have been expelled from Rome for a few years, leaving only the non-Jewish by ethnicity uh, and religion, at least in terms of how they were born, the, often the term that Paul will use is the Gentile um, believers left in the city of Rome to sort of steward that church. But it only lasted the initial expulsion for a few years. So eventually the Jewish people come back to Rome and they're now reintegrating into the community, but it's a community they have not been a part of or in leadership of for a few years. And though not every scholar agrees that this is exactly the time that Paul writes, for me, it's a really helpful rubric and lens through which to understand what Paul is doing in the book of Romans. Because if you've ever read it, he talks a lot. It just keeps going back to, to Jew and Gentile. Like It's like he's obsessed with talking about this. And you can imagine, right, like if somehow a significant group of our church was like forced out of Austin for a number of years and then was able to return. Uh, and especially if in those days, the Jewish Christians who had grown up ethnically and religiously Jewish um, were still adhering to lots of the practices in terms of dietary law and Sabbath practice, et cetera, that they were doing. Uh, how then like they come back and it's like, hey, by the way, don't forget this box is ending. Like we're going to have some great pulled pork after this. And then like the, you know, some people who had been a part of this community for years look like, what? No, like that's not a part of our dietary thing. That's not what we do for whatever reasons. And um, that like this is the, the kind of crisis that Paul is trying 
to address here. And rather than, as perhaps many, I would really say probably most Protestant uh, scholars and preachers have uh, posited Paul or placed Paul in conversation to sort of say like, oh yeah, Paul was trying to show like law, bad, evil, wrong, like you can't earn your salvation. You know, it's just about by faith and grace, all those good, wonderful things. And I do think Paul believes that and loves that, but rather is trying to show, hey, you can be a person who was born ethnically and in the tradition of Judaism and you can be a person who is an outsider, a Gentile, some other ethnicity and not originally of this religion. And you can both be a part of the same community. And it's okay if you have different paths. If, if the Jewish ethnically and traditionally people want to continue to practice their practices, wonderful, great, beautiful, continue. And if the Gentile people within the community Again, this would have still been at that time largely all considered Judaism. It's just a sect. If they want to continue, if they want to not have to get, for instance, the men getting circumcised, if they're not going to adhere to the same dietary laws, like wonderful as well. That that we could perhaps radical idea be together in a community and be on different journeys, but both be journeys that are devout in how we are trying to follow and grow in the spiritual path. And so that Paul then sees what underlies this is faith. So not that he's saying, so faith is like the law sucks and is terrible, but he's just saying like faith is the thing that precedes everything. That it is this trust in the divine, this hope that things can get better and other, that we are connected, that we are image bearers of God, each and every one of us. It is that kind of trust that supersedes all the other stuff. And when we can lock into that and be shaped by that and continue to progress in that, we can find a unity together. So he says in verse 13, for the promise that he would inherit the world did not come to Abraham or to his descendants through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. In other words, he's just doing like a chronology thing and saying, hey, before God ever said to Abraham, you need to be circumcised, and definitely way before Moses was receiving majority of the Torah, like God just said to Abraham, like, I'm going to bless you, and you're going to be a blessing to the world. Uh, and that that's really the thing that Abraham trusted and believed in, and so that that is the thing that supersedes all other things. And this talk of the law bringing wrath, I think it's important to re-remind ourselves always that Paul never in any of his writings ever uses the word hell and doesn't talk about hell. So we read something about bringing wrath and are probably immediately thinking, you know, a guy in a red leotard with a pitchfork and horns. Um, but that's just not what we, the Paul does at other places, talk about the devil. That, that is not what we see necessarily Paul integrating with. He does talk about wrath, which one of the meanings of that term is a magistrate. That is someone who is in power and who is over everything, uh, bringing justice whenever there is injustice. And so if we see the Torah, the covenant, as being this thing that is say like, hey, this is the way of life. Walk in it. And when you don't personally, and it starts to hurt you, and it starts to hurt your neighbor, what does it look like? Not to just say, wink, wink, well, no, good thing we're all saved by grace. 
but to really have those hard conversations and say, we need some repair. We need someone to turn around and to stop doing this so that we don't continue to operate in ways that are harmful to ourselves and to the larger way. And I just want to offer that that can be, I think, just as valid a way to understand what this wrath is that the covenant is invoking for us. Uh, recently, uh, I was asked by my friends who are former Voxers from way old school back in the day, uh, Daniel and Alexandria, to, be, uh, to dedicate their second-born child, Francis. Uh, about two and a half years ago, they asked me to dedicate their first-born child, Douglas, and it was right at the time, like, uh, Parker had just reached out to me maybe like three weeks before to say, hey, I'm on this search committee and we're going to be looking for a new pastor of community and teaching and uh, no one really wants to take it, would you? Not, not, not quite that, but um, that's not what he said. Uh, and, uh, and so I had just really, for the first time, like started like considering, like, oh yeah, what might it mean to open myself up to possibly coming here to Vox and to returning home to Austin? And I remember it, the the dedication for their son Douglas uh, was here in Austin, and so I had never driven over to Vesper before, even to see it. And so I was just like, I'm on my way before I went back to Austin, back to San Antonio. I drove all the way over here, and it was like it wasn't a Sunday or anything, so you know, it was locked up. And I still came. Is the thing? It's really cool and impressive. <laughs> but I was looking at it, and I was like, oh, okay, all right, yeah. At the time, it was a little hard for me to imagine myself here, uh, and yet I did more and more see the sense of openness to it. But that's that's an aside. Getting to uh, the reflection I've been having. Um, was really working through the liturgy that I had created for their first dedication with Douglas and thinking about the things that have changed for me, that have changed for them as parents. I mean, the clearest thing for them would be, hey, now there is a Douglas who is a part of this family who will also be a part of the nurturing community for Francis. Uh, and thinking like, what does that mean? And how will that be different? And I don't necessarily know explicitly Daniel and Alexandria's uh, philosophy on parenting and if they plan to do everything exactly the same way that they did with Douglas. But my guess is there will be some changes and some understandings of trying to hear her life and her passions and her giftedness and listen to that and shape it around that. And perhaps they've learned some things like, oh, we thought that was going to work really well with Douglas, and it really didn't. And so we're going to try something new that may work really well with Francis and also may equally not work well in just a different direction. Um, but the fact that with them, this isn't likely to be a one-size-fits-all approach to their nourishing and to their nurturing. Where do we notice internal resistance to inclusion of others or of exiled parts of ourselves? Internal resistance is real, even if it is because we don't understand a different language or vernacular. Perhaps we're afraid to make a cultural misstep. Maybe it's just our nostalgia-loving hearts that are afraid, that, like, wow, if, if other people have a seat at the table and begin to have significant influence, something I love may change in a way that's unpredictable and unfamiliar to me. Where do we find 
that resistance? How might we begin to envision a spiritual journey with God beyond the well-established barriers of our traditions, teaching, our familial, our familial upbringing, or our cultural norms? How does, if we could consider that our ways of being formed in Jesus and our practice of what it looks like to have faith in God isn't a one-size-fits-all universal approach, um, what does it look like to pay attention to our differences in our histories, our communities, our rituals, our power, our politics, our relationship to God and community? How does that encourage us to think and perhaps rethink about each of those in our own practices of faith today? Uh, we are surprised then by an expansive inclusion, and by that I don't mean just the fact that Paul is incorporating the Gentiles, but in fact that he is incorporating them in this way that is allowing for these different types of practices and journeys towards and with God and understanding each other. In verse 18 in chapter 4, we get hoping against hope. Abraham believed that he would become the father of many nations. Paul remembers it not as a great nation, singular, but of many nations, of many cultural understandings, of many different regions and perspectives. Probably the most obvious thing, uh, though not this, only one of the two of these things would have been happening uh, for Paul, but ultimately in our perspective, is that both Judaism, or that Judaism, Christianity, and Islam all trace their roots back to Abraham, right? There are these different traditions and understandings and faiths that all would cling to Abraham. Uh, so shall your descendants be. And verse 19, Abraham did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was already good as dead. Take that, Abraham. <laughs> it's like... I've had a few mornings where I wake up and feel that as well. I'm like, yeah, it feels already as good as dead. That's welcome to midlife. Um, but part of, I think, why Paul is saying it in this way is because he does have a transfiction. He's a focus on both the cross and the resurrection. And so he wants to see in Abraham's life. Yeah, Abraham's body in terms of like child producing Good is dead, like not happening. I'm not going to fill in all the other details for you, but you probably know what they're getting at. Uh, and yet, ultimately, Abraham and Sarah will have a child. So from death, there comes life, right? That Paul is seeing that, hey, what faith really means is that there can be situations that seem incredibly hard, incredibly impossible, that you know the the. The solution to this is probably not going to be fully realized within my lifetime, right? Like you can imagine um, if we were to talk to Martin Luther King Jr., he would probably say, I don't think, despite what people are going to say in my name, that the solution to racism and segregation is going to be a problem that is going to be fully overcome in my lifetime. And yet still in faith worked having hope against hope that we could have a better world than the world that he was born into. And that even despite at times when the empire pushes back and it seems like rights are eroding, that we can still continue to be people who work for peace and justice and God's goodness in the world. And this is that at times when we might find ourselves feeling like we're in a time in history where it feels like, yeah, uh, our civil rights, pretty much a dead body. Hard to imagine a lot of life coming from that right now. Yeah, hope 
for peace in situations like against Palestinians and Jewish people overseas. Feels pretty dead. Ridiculous amounts of death have already happened. Hard to imagine anything life-giving coming from this. And yet Paul insists because of his understanding of the cross and resurrection and how they are connected to each other that we continue to work in hope. And finally, then we continue to talk about what it looks like to discern bespoke spiritual practices. Discerning bespoke spiritual practices does not mean picking whatever is easy or convenient, though sometimes some ease and convenience can be a very nice thing. Uh, It does not mean practices that cater to our blind spots, but perhaps practices that are acknowledging and helping us to explore and become in conversation with our blind spots. No, I've said this before, and I'll probably say it a dozen more times uh, here, but I'm reminded of the conversation my Hebrew Bible professor, Liling Nan, uh, had in one of her classes where we were talking about Genesis 3 with Adam and Eve, and she was saying, if perhaps the sin of man is pride, is too much ego, maybe the sin of woman is not having enough pride, Right? She was acknowledging this gender difference, this power difference in the way that culture and history. And so if you only have a predominantly male patriarchal understanding, it's like, we got to repent of our pride. We can't get too boisterous. We can't be too bold. And that may be really good advice for a lot of us and for others of us, perhaps regardless of our gender and how we relate to that it might be the point to say, no, we we need to think about what it looks like to take up more space in the world and to truly inhabit it in that kind of way. Uh, Verse 20, Paul says that Abraham, about Abraham, no distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, being fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Paul's a smart human being, And so he knows that Abraham has like twice said to his wife, pretend like you're my sister so that they don't kill me because they want to get married to you. That doesn't seem like a lot of faith. He knows that Paul has said, hey, yeah, I know you said through Sarah, but like I've got a concubine over here. And so perhaps we're going to like make it happen through that because things aren't still happening over here in the other way. All these ways that would I think we might call wavering in faith. I do think part of this is that Paul is just trying to make a bigger theological point. And I also want to suggest that perhaps Abraham's exploration of, yeah, I don't know what God is up to or how God is going to accomplish what God has said God is going to do might be part of the messy journey we have in our own spiritual practice. And that that can be blessed and be an unwavering in faith too. That you might commit yourself to something and then realize a few days or weeks or months later that, like, that ain't it. Uh, or realize you let go of something from an earlier season of life, and maybe it's time to really reconsider that with fresh eyes because of where you are in your journey, that this isn't linear, this isn't a diagram that's just accelerating to the top every time, that we make mistakes, that life is hard, that there are setbacks, that there is mistrust. Um, I began this homily talking about the fact that many of us here have already had sort of our naivete disrupted, our relationship to institutions uh, hurt. And in uh, 
the TV, ABC's TV show Lost, one of the characters we meet is a man named Benjamin Linus. And he is given a lot of power on the island, and he's like a really manipulative person. Uh, and by the end of the series, he has already, because he is trying to basically serve his power and consolidate power, um, allowed his daughter to be killed. I don't think he really thought she was going to be killed, but when given a choice to either come out uh, or and his daughter would not die or to stay in, he insisted that the person must be bluffing and they were not, and his daughter is executed right in front of him. Uh, and so towards the end of the series, a woman, Ben has had the opportunity to kill this mythological figure, Jacob, who is kind of like a god in the island. And Ben has done this because, in fact, he feels like, I served Jacob as faithfully as I could, and I never saw him, and I never heard from him, and it doesn't seem like Jacob gave a damn about me. And so Benjamin has thus killed, and, and ultimately in serving him, someone I loved died. And so Jacob's bodyguard is chasing Ben through the woods, and Ben gets the jump on her and has a rifle pointed at her, and you see this anger and this hostility. And if Ben is going to bend, then you know that she is about to die. Uh, and instead of that, Jacob puts his gun down, or Ben rather, puts his gun down and says, I watched my daughter Alexander die in front of me, and it was my fault. I had a chance to save her, but I chose the island over her all in the name of Jacob. I sacrificed everything for him, and he didn't even care. Yeah, I stabbed him. I was so angry, confused. I, I was terrified that I was about to lose the only thing that had ever mattered to me, my power. But the thing that really mattered was already gone. I'm sorry that I killed Jacob. I am. And I do not expect you to forgive me because I can never forgive myself. The bodyguard that had been chasing him asked him, then what do you want? And he says, just let me leave. Just where will you go? And he says, to Locke, this seemingly evil character at this point. Why? Because he's the only one that'll have me. And then she says, I'll have you. And in this moment, this person who we have seen only really look after himself and his own end and his own power for about five seasons of a series is broken under the weight of all of the ways that he has been hurt by other institutions and the way that he has been a part of hurting numerous people himself. And he feels like there is no chance to begin again, and he finds out that he can begin again. And Lent is a season where we are reminded that it is never too late for us to begin again. If you're on our newsletter, we've sent out some resources for Ash Wednesday and Lent. I know Ash Wednesday has already happened, but it's never too late to begin again. So you can still go and access those resources. There's a zine, there's a video, other things. You can look at the service that we did for Ash Wednesday and begin to consider what this practice might look like for yourself. 
Uh, Adele Calhoun talks about rules of life, and the practice includes nurturing disciplines that draw you more deeply into loving God, creating rhythms that honor your desires and limits, periodically assessing the spiritual journey, not by comparing yourself to others, but through your unique rule for growth, developing regular, repeated relationships, experiences, and practices that make space for God in the business, busyness of life. Pray with me. Liberating one. We hope to rise to the calling of this era. There's so much trouble, so much suffering, but also so much potential. Keep us attuned to what you ask of us in these days and encourage us in our faith that we may believe we have what we need to live it out together. With faith, we remember the good news. The spirit of Christ accompanies us. This is not an abstract claim. This is a promise that God still takes on flesh when we act out of our sacred potential. Christ is alive and in our depths, our flesh, our communities. Turning from evil's hopes of our complicity and complacency, let us go emboldened, encouraged, and assured the power of God lives in us. May it be so. We pray this in the name of the God who gives life to the dead, the nonviolent ones scapegoated for our injustices, and the spirit alive among the nations. Amen.